Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. Dr Catherine Kusama is a psychiatrist with a special interest and experience in perinatal psychiatry. Catherine has a Bachelor of Medicine and Surgery from Monash University, a Master's Degree in Psychiatry from Melbourne University and is a Fellow of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. Treatment with Catherine may include preconception medication and mental health, infertility issues, adjustment to pregnancy and parenting, pregnancy loss and grief, medication and breastfeeding, as well as postpartum mental illness such as depression or psychosis. Welcome, Dr. Catherine Kasuma, to our podcast today. Looking forward to speaking to you. Um, Catherine, a really nice place to start is if you maybe you tell our audience what where you are today and how you got there. Thank you, Geordie. Uh, thanks for having me, uh, Geordie and Raylia. Uh, so I'm a perinatal psychiatrist. So that means that um, I've uh, a psychiatrist is a medical doctor who has done um, specialty training in psychiatry, so looking after people's mental health. So um, as, as a psychiatrist, because you've done the medical training, you can kind of integrate medical issues as well as mental health issues. Uh, psychiatrists are trained in diagnosing mental health issues, as well as treating them with biological um, treatments like medication, for example, as well as talking therapies. So um, because I subspecialize in um, perinatal psychiatry, that means um, I tend to see women who are in the childbearing stage of life, um, particularly uh, if they want to talk about uh, mental health, existing mental health issues prior to getting pregnant, any issues during pregnancy as well as after pregnancy. And um, I think it's a very lovely space to be in because um, having babies is usually a very, very happy and hopeful um, stage of life. Can you tell us a little bit about why, why did you choose perinatal psychiatry as a specialty? Why did you choose psychiatry to begin with? And then what made you attracted to the area of perinatal psychiatry? I love psychiatry. Um, to be honest, I think early on, I thought it was a chance to get the gossip about people. I loved that it was about talking about what was going on in people's lives. And I have to say, now that I'm working clinically, it's it's a real privilege to hear about, um, you know, people's innermost feelings and thoughts and what's going on um, with people. Uh, in terms of why I picked um, perinatal psychiatry, I guess I love babies. I've always found this phase of life, you know, around the time of women having babies to be um, to be so interesting and so hopeful. And it's often a time when a lot of women have the impetus to change things if they need to. So, for example, if they've got a history of being very anxious, uh, they may they will then think now's the time I need to get some help and I need to try to 
alleviate some of this and sort it out a little bit so that I'm better prepared for the baby. Um, if people have had issues with um, relationships with um, substance use, it's often a time when they will actually look for help, um, which is a very nice nice thing. Um, in terms of what we do clinically, I love seeing the babies. I always ask people to bring in their babies um, when they see me if they've got a baby already, um, partly because the babies are cute and it's also to see how the relationship is between the mother and baby. So in perinatal psychiatry, you're kind of treating three things. You're treating the mother and the baby and the relationship between them. And I think that's what makes it so rich and interesting. I also love it when my patients bring their babies in for a cuddle. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely. <laughs> it is. It is. And you can, you can learn so much about how things are going when you see how, they, how women are interacting with their babies and with their families when they come. Absolutely. And so you started off as learning medicine like Raylia. You, you learnt together. Is that right? Yes. Yes, we did. Yes. Lots of good memories. Yeah. Yeah, so we went to medical school together and we've been very good friends for the last more than 20 years now. It's been a long time. <laughs> been a long time. Catherine, something I'm learning about as I'm fairly new in this fertility space is the two-week wait. And I just wanted to know some advice from you about the coping strategies for that, for that two-week wait. So it's after you've had the embryo transfer and you've got to wait to find out if you're pregnant or not. And it's a pretty stressful. And it feels like it never ends. Yes, it is. So I think it's important during these two weeks to realise it is two weeks. There is an end in sight, although it doesn't feel like it at the time in the moment. Um, I think that um, these two weeks, people, you know, women should make sure that they keep themselves busy and keep themselves occupied and try to continue to live life as normal. Life is not on hold as such. Um you know, I think talking to Dr. Raylia and, and there are other doctors, they should decide what they can do physically um, to continue normal life, whether it be, you know, just getting out of the house, work, exercise, light exercise, that kind of thing. But in terms of their social and psychological well-being, it's important to stay connected and with their partner, with their, you know, with their doctors and with their family and friends. Uh, family and friends are who we often first go to rather than a professional to talk about issues if we have them. Um, that said... I think it's important to know to remember that if you've got an underlying mental health issue or tendency to things like, say, depression or anxiety, this could be a time when those symptoms are, um, are heightened. So it could be worth making an appointment to see your psychologist or GP if you've already got one that you know in that time. Um, it can help to for you to deal with any of the emotions, the uncertainty you may be feeling, um, as well as have someone independent to kind of vent to if you've already talked about that kind of stuff with your partner and with your family and friends. So, Kath, you mentioned, you mentioned a few things there. You mentioned that people might go and see their GP for mental health support and also a psychologist. You're a psychiatrist. For our audience who are not medical, could you break down a little bit about when someone might see a GP a psychologist or a psychiatrist or have a team involving all of the above? Thanks, Aurelia. That's a very good question. Um, it's often confusing between psychologists and psychiatrists. First of all, let me address the issue of the difference between psychologists and psychiatrists. So uh, both psychologists and psychiatrists deal with um, mental health and emotional issues. 
The big difference is that psychiatrists have gone through medical training and are medical doctors. Psychologists have done psychology training at university, but not medical training. So at the end of all the training, um, the difference is a psychiatrist can prescribe medication and biological treatments, whereas a psychologist focuses on talking therapies or psychotherapy is a fancy word. Psychiatrists are trained to prescribe or to do biological treatments as well as to diagnose and do talking therapies. Um, So the difference really is that people tend to come to a psychiatrist via their GP or their, their primary health doctor if they are also in need of some biological treatments as well. That's not always the case. We also get people who come to us for talking therapies as well. But that's the major difference, the medication issue and the talking therapies. So in terms of managing your own mental health, your mental well-being, um, I like to think that a a group approach or a team approach is most helpful because that way you can get most aspects of your health um, considered by everyone at once. So to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist, usually people will go through their GP, who's like the gatekeeper. The GKP can then talk to the person and think about what they think is helpful and provide a referral to a psychologist for talking therapy or a psychiatrist for a, another diagnosis or second opinion and biological and talking therapies. So, Kath, my patients who are going through IVF in Victoria are mandated to have a a session with a clinical psychologist who is a counsellor and some of that is just to go over some kind of nuts and bolts issues about considering the kind of complexity of keeping embryos in the freezer and other issues pertaining to IVF treatment but it also gives them the opportunity if they want to to continue a supportive therapy through IVF. Do you think women who have had fertility treatment as a group are a bit more at risk of having perinatal depression? Unfortunately, they are at, um, this research has shown that they are at higher risk of developing depression, anxiety, um, postpartum. Now, you know, what's that due to, you know, the stuff that comes to mind is the, the stresses that they've, they've been through to get there in the first place. Um, there's other stresses besides the stress on their body, the stress of, you know, the uncertainty of not knowing, the stress of striving for something for so long and probably having setbacks along the way, the stress of expectation, the stress of maybe guilt, those kinds of things. So, yes, unfortunately, they are at, tend to be at higher risk of developing depression afterwards. So taking that into account, how can a woman recognise in herself that she might be at risk of developing a more serious perinatal depression or anxiety? Women will usually know when then, and women and their partners or their family, people close by, will usually know if they're not functioning as well as they normally do. So the kinds of things that um, we recommend people keep an eye on uh, how they are feeling physically. Are they sleeping okay? Are they, do they have enough energy? Are they looking after themselves like self-care and eating, for example, as well as more psychological, emotional things like, are they feeling sad? Are they feeling like their emotions are going up and down a lot more than normal? Are they feeling it hard to cope with everyday things? So for example, things that might normally not cause them much distress or problem if things are suddenly making you really upset or, you know, really angry that they wouldn't normally happen. 
at the other end of the spectrum, at the very severe end, um, if people are starting to have thoughts about wanting to hurt themselves or end their life, then we definitely think that they should, or we definitely say that they should be um, seeking some help. I think it's important during this process to constantly check in with yourself about how you're feeling. Is this, you know, is this normal? Is this something I've talked about with my psychologist or my counsellor? Um, is this something that my doctor has warned me about? And if so, am I coping with it or is this getting too much? You mentioned before about people that already suffer with depression and anxiety needing to be a bit careful. If that's the case, or maybe in their history they've suffered from depression and anxiety, do you recommend that they get some help before they start fertility treatment to make sure they're in optimal mental health? Yes, Jordi. I think it's it's great, as, as with most things, it's great to be planned and prepared. So knowing that um, going through these procedures can be quite stressful, I think it's worth making sure that you're in the best space in your mental health as you can be. So whether that's a combination of making sure you have the right supports around you, that you have the right supports with people who know what's going on for you and who understand, um, it could also be making sure that your medication, if you are on medication, um, is um, optimal for you, that you're not having side effects or that it's actually working. I think the other thing to remember is most people when they have recurring, when they have a tendency to say anxiety or depression to episodes, they tend to have a signature of symptoms that are particular to them that they will experience each time. So something that we often recommend is to get people to think about what symptoms are usual for them when they get unwell and to maybe write them down, put them, tell their you know partners, friends, family about it, people close to them so that they can maybe see that it's happening or friends and family can say, hold on, you're getting those same thoughts again. Do you think that something's happening? And then maybe start a conversation about whether more help needs to be sought then. If you're already connected, say, with a psychologist or a psychiatrist, I think it's a good time to make an appointment to see them preemptively to discuss things like your medication. You might need a bit of a tune-up with a psychologist about um, your coping strategies and mindfulness and those kinds of things. It's just good to be prepared overall. You sort of mentioned either a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Is there ever a time that, that there might be overlap and you need both or do you start with one and graduate to the other? How, how do you know which one you need? Good question. I guess it, also, it partly depends on who your GP has referred you to. That said, if it is your first bout of, say, depression or anxiety and the symptoms are mild, so you're not having suicidal thoughts or self-harm thoughts, things like that, um, people tend to be referred to a psychologist. Um, Medicare provides for 10 sessions um, in a calendar year. Um, from there, as psychiatrists, we... We often do actually get referrals from psychologists for a second opinion, for example, of, um, of diagnosis, um, if they're not sure what the diagnosis is, or for treatment, if they're not sure why their treatment isn't really working or isn't working as well as they thought. Having said that, if you have got, um, if you are taking medication uh, for anxiety, for depression, for a mental illness, I think it is well worth going being referred directly to a psychiatrist so that you can get an overall picture from the one person of what's happening with your medication as well as with your talking therapy. So in answer to your question, Jordi, it's it's a mix really. We often get people who come to see um, us and also have a regular psychologist that they may see, for example, weekly or fortnightly, and they might see the psychiatrist maybe monthly, two-monthly. 
We have people who see um, just a psychologist and then come to see us for another opinion on diagnosis and medication as a once-off. And we also have people who come to see us directly and see just us regularly. I think the most important thing is that you find someone who you feel safe and you trust. You feel safe with and who you trust. Because talking therapy, no matter what kind, will not work if the person doesn't feel safe and contained um, with their therapist, whether they're a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Absolutely. That's something Raylia says all the time regarding fertility as well, is you've got to have that rapport with your fertility specialist. You do, so that you can be real and be honest with them so that, you know, you can both work out problems together. And, you know, if you don't feel comfortable with your therapist and you don't tell them everything that's going on, the therapy will not be working. Talking a little bit about medications that women might take for depression and anxiety. As a retired obstetrician and now fertility specialist, I often see women for the first time and they tell me that they're trying to either get off their medication because they're worried about how it might affect pregnancy and their baby or their seeking help to whether they change medication. How should women who are needing medication to manage their mood symptoms and and symptoms of depression approach the situation when they're thinking about planning a pregnancy? I think this is where um, where Geordie's comment about being prepared and maybe seeing your psychologist, psychiatrist beforehand is useful. I think of course, we're all, you know, we'd be worried if we're taking medication, how does it affect the baby? How does it affect the pregnancy and, and your body as well? And most medications will affect those things. So ideally, it's good to have an appointment with a psychiatrist or a perinatal psychiatrist beforehand to talk about this, to talk about the pros and cons of the medication because stopping medication or reducing medication without much supervision around it by your specialist, for example, can be dangerous because it can lead to a relapse of the condition that you're taking the medication for. So, for example, it can lead to a relapse of depression um, or anxiety. Um, Having said that, when we think about medications in pregnancy, we always weigh up the pros and the cons of the medication. So what are the pros of being on medication and what are the cons? And what are the pros of being off medication and the cons? Because you have to think about what it, would, what it would be like for you and for your pregnancy and your baby afterwards if you were medicated as well as if you were not medicated because we're thinking about the biological effects of a medication on um, on the pregnancy on the baby as well as the psychological effects. And I think the psychological effects is something that people need to, um, that needs to be given more importance because we know that, for example, women who are very depressed or anxious during the pregnancy tend to have poorer pregnancy outcomes um, and tend to have poorer relationships with their baby once the baby's born, which can then lead to further problems. What are some concerns that a woman might face taking antidepressant or anti-anxiety medications during a pregnancy from the biological perspective? What are the worries? So from the biological perspective, we usually look at a few different domains. So we look at whether it will affect um, getting pregnant in the first place or pregnancy loss. We look at whether it will affect the um, the pregnancy itself. We look at whether it will affect the, um, the fetus 
um, whether it will affect the mother and then what it could do neurodevelopmentally to the baby afterwards. So in terms of examples, the most common medications used for women who are who've got depression and or anxiety are known as SSRIs. It's a, it's a class of medication that um, is very widely used um, for depression in um, people, whether or not they're pregnant. Um, and it's the first line used for various reasons, most of them being the safety profile and the side effect profile. The studies that have been done are mainly retrospective studies looking at the experience of women who've done them. We can't do the gold standard of randomised controlled trials because it's unethical to give people things when you don't know what they're going to cause. So in the studies that have been done, they have found to generally be safe in the sense that they generally don't cause any increased rate of birth defects or physical birth defects in the babies. They are generally not found to be as causally associated with neurodevelopmental problems, so with like autism or low IQs or that kind of thing. And these are studies done until the child's about six years old. They are also found to be, um, they, they do tend to pass through the placenta and through the breast milk, but they're thought to be safe for use while breastfeeding as well. They're not thought to cause problems for the pregnancy itself um, in terms of diabetes, that kind of thing, or for the mother. There is some research that has shown that there is possibly some association with a slightly lower birth weight or slightly earlier birth, but I think those kind of findings are not very well replicated. So in general, they're thought to be to be safe, um, and that's why we recommend that they see patients see a perinatal psychiatrist to talk about it in detail and to be able to weigh up the risks um, for themselves because they're the ones that will know how severe or not their mental illness is and how important it is to be on the medication. We've talked a lot about planning and before being pregnant and going through the process, but something that's probably equally as important is once you have the baby and if you've had anxiety or depression and have been so stressed about getting pregnant, how are you going to be the best mum possible and what does that look like? That's a very, very important question and something that I pay a lot of attention to in my clinical practice. Uh, so like I've mentioned before, you know, it's important for women to be in the best mental health possible when they have a baby because, as everyone knows, it is a very, very stressful time. It's full of unknowns. You can't predict what's going on. And that's if you're having IVF or not. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, with IVF, you might feel like you're a bit of control in terms of medications and um, when you know, ovulation happens and, you know, eggs and that kind of thing. Sorry, I don't have the technical language. But it's still a, it's a life-changing event when a baby is born. And um, people often feel the weight of this great responsibility for such a helpless being and for keeping this thing alive, amongst other things. So there's the practical, you know, feeding, changing nappies, cleaning, making sure that everyone's warm enough and that kind of thing. And then there's the emotional, psychological development that's so important. And we know that the, um, the mother-child bond or relationship is usually the first relationship a baby has with anybody. It's a very, very close relationship. So therefore, the relationship you have with the baby is pretty much setting, setting a template for this baby to know what future relationships are going to be like. So we know that in women, for example, who are very depressed or very anxious when their baby is born, 
they tend to not be able to respond to the baby the same way that other women do. So, for example, they may not be able to respond practically to the feeding, to the to reading the cues when the baby's cold or distressed or hungry, as well as to kind of teaching the baby about emotions and socialization. So people, babies learn this by looking at our facial expressions when, um, when they look at us. So you know that most people, when they see a little baby, they'll coo and they'll have a high-pitched voice and they'll change their facial expressions and be very animated. That's the way a baby learns about social interactions. If you are very depressed or very anxious, you may not be able to do that as well. So the bond with your baby may not be as, as good. That's really interesting. So if a mother has had a difficult time having her baby through IVF and has had a history of some level of anxiety and depression, what kind of supports are available to her in that perinatal phase to help support her through this time? First of all, I think it's important for her to realise that she is at risk of developing anxiety or depression postpartum or even during the pregnancy. About a third of of postnatal depressions have started during the pregnancy. Usually family and friends are very important to have people around for practical support, for emotional support as well. Usually people's GPs, so it's important to have a GP you've got a good relationship with. Usually GPs are also a source of support. Sometimes just having someone um, who has your back and who tells you that you're doing a good enough job is enough um, to calm some of these anxieties. Having said that, they can, if they've already got a psychologist that they're in that they're in touch with, it could be worth having some setting up some appointments, whether it's via telehealth or whether it's in person, um, soon after the baby's born to check up on those things. In terms of other maybe less one-on-one types of help, there are some resources online that um, people can can access. So Panda, the Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Association, is one you can. I think I've got the phone number, you can Google P-A-N-D-A. Um, there's also the Gidget Foundation. I think that might have even been set up by, by an obstetrician. That's also a good source of some, of some um, information, basically, to try to learn about whether what you're going through is normal or not and to support you. For people who've actually got, who actually have got depression and anxiety, some of the websites, for example, for Beyond Blue, can also be useful. So they might be, you might think that they're general, but they actually have got sections on pregnancy um, as well. Sorry, I was just thinking about one specific to IVF. I think the Gene Hales website would also have some specific things there. So it's basically information for people who've gone through IVF. We'll list those in the show notes for people who are interested. Kath, what kind of proportion of women who have a baby are going to get perinatal depression or anxiety and is that how what kind of proportion in all women and what kind of proportion in women who've needed fertility assistance so in women generally after they've had babies about one in ten will experience postnatal depression I think the figures go up to about one in six even for anxiety to be honest I'm not entirely sure about what it is for people who've been through fertility treatment but I know that it'll be higher than that having said that with postnatal, perinatal depression and anxiety, the symptoms are often very, very mixed. So I like to just call it depression and anxiety because rather than differentiating between one, one or the other because the kind of symptoms that um, a woman has after the baby's born of depression tend to involve a lot of anxiety, ruminations and worry as well. 
Yeah, and that's so hard, isn't it? Because all new mothers, especially with the first baby, have some level of anxiety because it is. There's no manual on how to have a baby. And every baby's different. Yeah. And also the sleep deprivation. No, that doesn't help. How can that affect someone who's got a tendency to depression or anxiety? That's the thing, really, with um, postpartum depression and anxiety. It's often hard to differentiate the physical symptoms of exhaustion after you've had a baby or in late pregnancy. Differentiate that from the kind of symptoms you'll get in depression, for example, not having any energy, feeling tired, having difficulty sleeping, you know, maybe not really having much of an appetite and feeling a bit nauseous, you know, with with anxiety, for example. They're often quite hard. And I think it just goes to show that it's helpful to get a professional opinion so that you're not trying to work this out on your own because it's just too difficult you know, with a baby, with your sleepless nights, all that kind of stuff. Some professional might be able to go into more of the, say, anxiety, um, cognitions and those other things to differentiate whether it's just the the sleeplessness that comes with having a baby, for example. You mentioned that, that getting pregnant and having a baby is often a time when women will look after themselves and look to fix things. Something we've talked a lot about on this podcast is people's weight and how important that is with fertility and having a baby. And I just thought that's often people's weight often has underlying mental causes as well. And is that something that you find comes up? Um, In the sense that we get some women who are, say, who use weight as one of their motivating things for motivating, you know, one of their goals to change after the pregnancy, for example, we get that. In terms of pre-pregnancy, we do find often actually that people are maybe at a certain kind of weight range because of things that may have happened to them in the past that may have affected their self-esteem, affected their sense of safety, affected their sense of um, confidence that they in themselves and that they can elicit change. So in short, weight can be a result of things that have Oh, sorry, emotional trauma or psychological things in the person's past. Not always the case, but um, it, it often does come up. You're right. I also have a group of patients who have sought fertility assistance because they've recovered from eating disorders and might have at the time that they were going through puberty, particularly because it's an at-risk time, disrupted the way the hormones communicate between the brain and the ovary at a critical time and for some women even when they later achieve a more healthy body weight having been very underweight those hormonal patterns might not re-establish those patients might be at risk mightn't they as their body shape changes in pregnancy definitely anorexia is one of the hardest uh how do you call it psychiatric disorders you want to call it that to treat it can be very rewarding when the treatment is um, effective, but it's hard and it takes a lot of work from the women and their families um, to, to move on from that. And having said that, like a lot of other psychiatric or mental health disorders, getting pregnant is no, is, is no protective factor for it and people generally are at risk of a relapse, especially since pregnancy involves you know, a lot of body changes that are really out of your control. It's almost the ultimate in being out of control because you cannot control what your body is doing or what's happening there. So um, women are who have a history of an eating disorder are at risk of a relapse or of anxiety, depression, 
during and after the pregnancy and in any of the women with an eating disorder that I see, I do recommend that they schedule themselves for um, appointments with their psychiatrist or with their, their, their therapist afterwards um, to make sure that things are on track because after the baby's born with all the busyness of looking after a baby, with the body changes that are, that, that are happening, it's easy to kind of fall back into, for example, forgetting to eat and just saying that you're too busy and the baby needs this and that and um, not looking after yourself so well. And that could be a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of difficulty breastfeeding and difficulty coping because you don't have energy. Yeah, it's like, unfortunately, it's like a like a cycle that kind of perpetuates itself. You know, if you're not looking after yourself and you're not sleeping, although it's not your fault you're not sleeping because of the baby, then you've got no energy during the day, you can't do all the things you wanted to do, and then you feel disappointed in yourself and you, you lower your self-esteem even further. And it, it's a vicious cycle. It goes around and around. And that's why I think it's so important to be able to talk to someone, first of all, friends and family, so that maybe they can give you a bit of a reality check. And then also the professionals to give an even better, even more of a reality check and kind of intervene if there's problems, for example, with lactation. So, for example, with breastfeeding or, you know, with um, setting up a routine for sleep and um, sleep and feeding the baby and your own self-care. When a woman suffers severe perinatal depression or postnatal depression and she's really at risk, so she's so low that she feels in danger of self-harm or her partner's worried that she's in danger of harming either herself or their baby, what can be done for that woman and what is routinely done for a woman in that circumstance? Very important question because it's important for everyone involved with the family to know how to get help and when to get help. So when people are starting to have those thoughts around self-harm, harming the baby always needs to be asked um, or escaping, the things that can help are um, contacting emergency services, for example, triple zero. That's one way of accessing help. Another way is to actually go to the local emergency department because most, pretty much all emergency departments in Melbourne will have mental health clinicians working in the emergency departments. And some of the larger hospitals will also have a psychiatrist working in the emergency department to provide um, assessments for people who come in with these kind of issues. So the most drastic that I can think of would be to call triple zero or go to the local emergency department. You can also go to your GP because the GP will also know how to access these services, you know, from emergency, for example. You can also speak to your, if you've really got a psychologist or a psychiatrist to speak to them. Generally, if someone needs very urgent help around, around that, it will involve a mental health assessment from a psychiatrist. So whether that's because you know them already or you're referred by your your GP or in the emergency department, and then treatment goes from there. And the treatment can vary from medication. It can be um, talking therapy. It can even be admission to a mother-baby unit, which there's a few in, in Melbourne, for example. But I wouldn't want people to be worried that they're going to be thrown into hospital straight away because that doesn't always happen. There are many treatments that can happen at home. People can um, access visits from the mental health teams in their own home or even phone calls. So it doesn't always necessarily mean being admitted to hospital. That said, sometimes when someone is very, very severely unwell or suicidal, hospital admission probably is the safest option for them and their family and for their child. 
the mother-baby units are set up specifically to treat mothers with their baby. So you have to be admitted with your baby. You can't go by yourself. Um, and it's staffed with specialist psychiatrists and nurses who are used to looking after mother and baby. Something else that comes to mind is miscarriage. And that's something that certainly Raylia would see quite a bit and that we, we hear about. Our friends who are now starting to talk about miscarriage Um, It used to really be a secret, but it's starting to be less of a secret now, which is great. I think everyone needs the support. Um, What advice do you have for women who have miscarried before, who are nervous about trying again? What what are some things for coping with miscarriage? I think it's for, you know, miscarriage is is terrible, um, whether you're prepared or not. But I think it's important to to speak about it. And I think reducing that stigma has helped, like, around, like like reducing the stigma around mental illness has helped that people feel more open, they can share stories a bit more and therefore not feel so alone. Because sometimes part of the big distress is feeling alone and you're the only person to go through this. I think the reactions that people have will vary according to their history and therefore it's important to to speak about it personally with their GP or with their um, with their partner and then go from there. So if it's something that talking to, say, your partner, your friends and family about, um, if that is enough to kind of reassure you that you get it off your chest and you feel better after talking about it, then that's fine. But if you are still feeling like you are not functioning, it is starting to, if the distress is starting to take over your life and prevent you from working, from functioning at home, looking after the other kids, for example, I think that's when it's useful to go to your GP and talk about it with them and potentially ask for a referral for further care. Kath, this is a, a, a bit of a difficult question, but I'm, I'm thinking of a particular patient of mine that I've spoken to quite recently when I raise it. What if a patient comes to see you and as a specialist you really feel like they could benefit from psychological and psychiatric input? They're not acutely unwell to the point where you would you know, be concerned that they were going to harm themselves or be at risk, but they're really, really quite obviously in a situation of anxiety, depression, and they're struggling, but just not to the level where they would would harm themselves. And on suggestion of seeking help, they're very resistant. What, and I can understand that, not everybody wants to, wants to kind of open the Pandora's box of our emotions and kind of dig deeper, what can we do to support women in those situations and to encourage them still to seek help without crossing their boundaries? That's a hard one because, you know, with talking therapies and being on medication, it's very hard to force someone. If someone doesn't want to engage in, for example, a talking therapy, you can't really force them to do that. That said, I think as their their doctor, we've got a duty to to always suggest and discuss what's best for the patient. And I think, Raylia, you're in that very special space where you can talk about um, how this may affect their family going forward and their baby. Because, you know, as we've talked about, the mental health of the mum affects the whole family. It affects, I like to think of it as affecting the trajectory of the whole family and the baby. 
so therefore it needs to be, be looked at. And I guess when people have very strong reactions to being seen by a mental health clinician, it's often coming from a place of being very fearful or scared or a past experience that they've witnessed in the past. So sometimes I think asking very gently why they're not so keen is helpful. I think it it also helps a lot if you've already got a trusting relationship with a person. So, for example, you know, someone coming in for the first time, it's probably not going to be so so useful to, to, to go there in terms of asking why not, I really think you need it, that kind of thing. But with your patient, if they trust you to work with them with their fertility, I would hope that means that they would trust you that you are knowledgeable and you can say, for example, I've noticed that you know, it looks like this or that is hard for you to deal with or that you are struggling and I am very worried about you. You know, the, the general kind of ideas of um, not being offensive about it, not being too forceful, but kind of suggesting and backing up your suggestions with the evidence um, would be helpful. And I think often for women, the, a very um, persuasive factor is if they find out about how much it will affect their baby. Because most people want the best for their babies, the best start. Yeah, it's it's very difficult. I mean, sometimes also uh, it's helpful if you can have their partner or their family member in as well and maybe talk to them about it, see what they think. It's helpful if the family member or partner thinks the same thing as you and maybe can approach it from another angle at home. But it's very difficult because you, you want to walk that fine line between um, telling them what you think honestly but not so much that they don't come back to see you because if they don't come back to see you, you don't know what's going on anymore. That's good advice. You've mentioned a few times about finding the right person to talk to. What advice can you give our listeners to how to find the right person? Your GP will refer. And I guess the thing is the GPs will usually have a list of people that they know and that they will then refer to. So that doesn't always mean that that person will be good for you. So I think when you go to meet your um, your psychiatrist for the first time, it's important to keep an open mind uh, that it may take more than one session. I normally do my assessments over two or three sessions because I think it's very hard to um, definitively diagnose someone in their you know in their entirety in just one session. And I think two or three sessions gives you a bit of time to get to know them, to know their style, and whether you think you can work with them. So it's like dating. You shouldn't dismiss someone after the first date. Kind of, kind of. <laughs> I think it's also important to, you know, ask around. If you know that you've got family or friends who have a therapist that they like, um, that they've done well with, it could be worth asking them about it as well. Thank you so much, Catherine. Where can our listeners find you? So I work at um, the Village Family Mental Health Specialist. It's in Newport. And if you look that up, there'll be a whole website with all the where, where a um child and perinatal kind of psychiatry or mental health practice with some psychologists and psychiatrists and speech pathologists there. I'm also part of the perinatal psychiatry network. So if you look that up online, um, there's a group of of us in Melbourne and um, there is a website where you can find details about us and our experience, each of us, as well as where we each practice because we don't practice in the same place. We're all over Melbourne. Thank you. And I'll put all those details in the show notes. One more question. In, in the age of COVID and the greater access to telemedicine, how are perinatal psychiatry services affected and what can you offer via telemedicine? 
Well, in psychiatry, I think we're actually very lucky that we can do a lot of our assessments and um, talking therapies via telehealth. That said, of course, I still think it's better to have people in person. There are some little nuances that you can't, that are harder to pick up um, on video call, but it is possible. And I think being forced to really get into it by all this COVID stuff has actually been very useful because now you can see um, your psychiatrists if they offer it, usually most people do, via telehealth. And I think for women postpartum, when it's hard to get out with a baby, for example, it'll actually be very, very useful. I think it's also useful that that means that um, the psychiatrist can kind of see the background in your house and see what's going on at your home without having to come and do a home visit, which psychiatrists in private practice don't normally do. In terms of accessing services, it has been harder for things like maternal child health nurses and lactation consultants and that kind of thing. And I can't speak for them with what they're working through, but I know that with um, psychiatrists, it hasn't been too much of a disruption. Early on with some of the, in the public hospitals, there has been some problems with that because they stopped doing some of their clinics sometimes and they had to move to doing it via telehealth. But um, generally, it's actually been all right. And I actually think it's a good thing that we've been forced to get into it now. Yeah, and it might also mean that some patients of mine who might not live close to someone like you but listen to this podcast and really value your expertise might be able to access your services. They might be able to, that's right. I think it's really forced the way all of us practice. Um, you know, we've been talking a bit in our supervision groups and um, we've all been quite surprised by how it's actually worked out all right. There are some disorders that we think really won't do well with um, the telehealth, but in general, it's okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on Knocked Up. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Knocked Up. Check out our back catalogue and subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Many of our episodes focus on answering listener questions. So if you have one, please be in touch via our email, podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com. Follow us on social media at Women's Health Melbourne and Dr. Raylia Liu. If you're enjoying our podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. It really helps others to find us. See you soon.